Thank you for tuning in to the Practical Preservation Podcast. Please take a moment to visit our website, practicalpreservationservices.com, for additional information and tips to help you restore your historical home. If you've not done so, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and also like us on Facebook. Welcome to the Practical Preservation Podcast, hosted by Danielle and Jonathan Kepperling. Kepperling Preservation Services is a family-owned business based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, dedicated to the preservation of our built architectural history for today's use as well as future generations. Our weekly podcast provides you with expert advice specific to the unique needs of renovating a historic home, educating by sharing our from-the-trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise, balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home. Today on the Practical Preservation Podcast, I have uh, Leslie Stainton with me, and um, she's the author of Staging Ground, an American Theater and its Ghost. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Leslie. Happy to be here. It's great. It's a great time yeah. of year. Yeah. So tell me about your background. Uh, let's see. I, um, I grew up in Lancaster. I started working at the Fulton Theater, which is the topic of this book. Um, when I was maybe 12 years old, I ushered. I then eventually found my way on stage for several years in, during college and a little bit afterwards. Worked in the development office, did children's theater there. And as so many people do who know that building and, and come into contact with it, I fell in love with the place and I was fascinated by its history um, and by the fact that it, um, to me, it, 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 it's like a prism for American culture and American history. It's, it's grounded in the two great crimes on which this country is built, the enslavement of African-Americans and the um, oppression and removal of Native Americans. Right. And so, um, yeah, so that was how I got going with the book. I had majored in theater at Franklin and Marshall, went on and did a graduate degree in theater at University of Massachusetts. I now live in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And um, yeah, and I mostly write and edit. And um, so that's kind of my background in a nutshell. Okay, very good. I, when you, I, I, um, I know what you were referencing with the, you know, it being built on the two American, um, but um, if, can you just share a little bit for maybe listeners that, that, that weren't, aren't aware that it was built on the old jail? Sure. sure. Yeah. 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 So the, the, if you go to Lancaster and drive uh, along Water Street, which is the, the Fulton now ha- occupies an entire city block between Prince Street, Water Street, King Street, and Grant Street. But if you drive along Water Street, you will see this astonishing stone wall. It makes no sense right. in um, American theater history. There's, I can't think of another theater like it, but that was the original colonial jail built around 1730 in Lancaster and um, quite famously and tragically the site in 1763 of the massacre of the last of the Conestoga Indians, the last indigenous people to inhabit Lancaster County when the land was still the wilderness, still a wilderness. They were being held in that jail for their protection at a, at a moment of really heightened um, tension between white settlers, European settlers and natives. Um, they were peaceful Indians. They had lived and traded amicably with Lancastrians for many, many, many years. Um, and they were massacred inside those walls. So there is that 
terrible history uh, embedded in that building. And then the jail itself continued to operate as a jail until it was turned into Fulton Hall in 1852. So another sort of 90 years. And when I was doing research for this book, I discovered uh, lists of people who were incarcerated in that jail. And they included many, many African-Americans, people of African descent trying to flee slavery who were caught across the border, put in the jail, and in many cases, remanded to the um, to the plantation south. So yeah. it's a um, it's a troubling history. Yeah, when I was doing research on slavery in Lancaster County, I haven't finished it yet. Um, but I would I would guess if I did the tally that the the county itself actually sold more slaves because if they didn't get if they didn't get um, if they didn't get um, claimed, I guess I don't know what better word I could use. Right. They then, you know, did they they had you know transactions and it's it i i i don't think that many people think about that that but that was like a byproduct of the fugitive slave act because you know you oh yeah 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 it was a i mean the the north was put in a terrible position and certainly people you know inclined towards abolitionism were put i mean it was awful the other Another way that the Fulton and Lancaster was implicated in slavery is um, right around that the time Fulton Hall was built, 1852, um, Lancaster was making a lot of money with cotton mills. And even a figure like Thaddeus Stevens talked about how um, how much those cotton mills contributed to the Lancaster economy. And of course, cotton came from the South and the Fulton was clearly built in part with money um, from those cotton mills. So, I mean, it's it's a complicated history and people often forget that slavery existed in the North, but it did. And for many, many, many years and um, people, <laughs> you know, it was, yeah, it was, a, it was yeah, an we, awful system. Yeah, yeah. We had um, a few, maybe a few months ago, I had, um, um, Mark Howard Ross on, and he wrote a book, Slavery in the North. And I, okay. and I always say that he, he, he's a um, political scientist that didn't realize he was writing a preservation book because he, 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 he was writing about collective memory and how if we don't acknowledge the places, we lose that memory. So those places are still there that have those ties to slavery in the North, but because the history has been erased because people don't remember, because it hasn't been acknowledged, it does, people assume that it wasn't. And right. so I, I'm like, that's that's an argument for preservation right there. And he just he didn't realize he was making that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and we have um, that whole history has been so erased from the landscape. I've, I'm um, on the board of the Slave Dwelling Project, another interest of mine, um, which seeks, among other things, to preserve slave dwellings um, throughout the country and also to call attention to them and to call attention to the history. And um, I would love to see a project. Um, in fact, somebody in Connecticut is starting something like this where it's called Witness Stones, where they are marking sites of enslavement throughout um, the country. And I just, you know, if you can't see the history, um, it's all too easy to ignore it or pretend it didn't happen or pretend it wasn't as bad as it was. Yeah. Um, um, in, uh, in Pennsylvania, um, during, actually during the revolution, they started the gradual abolition of slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, there was actually really good records from like 1780 on because everything had to be recorded. And just looking at those names, I can point out all the, all the places downtown that you know, oh, wow. and, and outside because the, the names of the owners are still associated with those buildings, you know, so like, it's like we walk past it every day. We just, it's just not part wow. of the history. So, yeah. 
I would love to see, um, you know, at some point, some of those sites marked oh, many, yeah. all of them, ideally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we know what we're living. We're on, ha- this is hallowed ground. Yes. And yeah. it's, it's tragic ground. Yeah. Yeah. And for, for all the, I, 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 this is really off topic, but for all of the ideals that were, were espoused during the revolution, there, there were still really, even the founding fathers had very complicated histories. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that because they were people too. Like they weren't, they weren't, they weren't, you know, they're, they're the same. I, the more, the more that I learn about history and the more I learn about people, I realize that people haven't changed that much. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's really important. Um, I'm a descendant of enslavers in Georgia and I've actually just finished a book about, about them. Um, so I spent the last 10 years or so really researching um, this history. And, and one of the things I grappled with is, you know, people will say to me, well, people were different back then. And I say, no, they weren't. And I think if we pretend that that's the case, then we somehow remove ourselves from responsibility, not just responsibility for slavery, but but we remove ourselves and think, well, they were just different people, like a different species, and therefore we are incapable of that. Well, that's not true. And I think it's much more important and interesting to look and say, why did they do what they do? What would I have done? Um, I don't think I would have been that different. It was, you know, as we said earlier, it was so based in economics. It was, it Um, was. And and I I think about the psychology of it like the um the fact that you had to the enslaver had to depersonalize and dehumanize in order to be able to to do that although you know they there were obviously you know children being born that were obviously related to them you can look and see you know the genetics like you know these people were still human you know i just i think about that a lot because i i'm i'm um i'm biracial so my mother's family was enslaved in um Arkansas, Tennessee. And my dad's family was mostly in the West. Um, we have, I have found some records in the, or in the mid 1700s where when they were in Pennsylvania, they, they may have, may have owned uh, slaves, but by the time they moved West, slavery just wasn't as prominent um, than there. Um, well, but it's, it's a complicated, it's a complicated history. It's very complicated. Well, I was going to say on all sides, I know we're really sliding into slavery, but it's yeah. it's, it's at the root. Um, on all sides, people had to um, had to pretend, you know, the the enslaved African-Americans had to pretend that they were servants right. and that they wanted to be there and that they cared about the families. And the uh, the enslavers had to pretend that these were servants and loyal servants and devoted and all this stuff. I mean, there were so many it was built on so many lot yeah I, so, yeah I, yeah I, I i i agree with you and i i'm 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 excited i'm glad to talk to you about that because i think it's something that i think about often is that you know the the intellect and the and the things that we see now like the you know all the first really it it, it had to be hidden because because mm-hmm. you you know and there's there's books documenting where the enslaved people were running um the plantations and running business enterprises for, sure. for their owners it so it wasn't like it wasn't like the intelligence wasn't wasn't documented, but it's easier to just say they need us to take care of them because they're like children, you know. <laughs> oh yeah, and I mean African Americans absolutely built this country, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's, talk about it. and you can see it. Um, I mean, that wonderful new museum in Washington on the Mall. I, and yes, the I work, to go see. Yeah, and the filigreed work on the outside is absolutely inspired by um, ironwork that an enslaved. Uh, uh, craftsman made, I think, in South Carolina. But in any case, but this is, you know, we're, we want to yeah. 
we're talking about the Fulton right, and yeah, ghost. Yeah, yeah. So, so this so, is where so, I say like yeah. this, this building in particular, but I mean, our country is so ghosted by our, this history. Um, and, and the Fulton in particular is ghosted, not just by those events which took place way back in the 18th and early 19th century, but then when the theater itself was built as a, as a town hall in 1852. The, the jail was sold and moved east of town and a local merchant named Christopher Hager decided to build a town hall on that site. The first theatrical production to play the Fulton was a minstrel show, which was you know a group of white performers in blackface right. uh, trying to present a sort of happy picture of plantation life um, in America. And then pretty soon after that, um, the first production of Tom's Cabin um, came to the Fulton. So the Fulton was, you know, again, like this staging ground. It was a place where right. people were looking at images of what was happening around them. They were trying to come to grips with things like race um, in this country. And and not, um, later in the Fulton's history, Buffalo Bill came and performed there. And he brought, quote unquote, live Indians with oh, him. Goodness. And he performed on the stage in the 1870s and 80s, right above the ground where the Conestoga Indians were massacred mm -hmm. in 1763. So you have theater um, on top of real life events and this the kind of layering that took place in that building throughout its history. And even now, um, I mean, the new Fulton just um, launched a, a diversity series this summer um, with, um, you know, calling in new, new plays, new playwrights um, to try to address some of the issues that are going on in this country right now, particularly around race right. and um, uh, different communities, diversity. And so um, it, it, a theater is a living organism and yes. it is a, it's kind of a, it's a mirror in many ways. Yeah. And, 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 and I think entertainment tends to take that role, C comedy, you know, some of those things, holding, holding that mirror up to ourselves, when, even when it's uncomfortable, just to, I think that that's, I think that's important. And I think it can, it can change people. Uh, too. Yeah. Um, it yeah. can change, yeah. change your perspective. So what, what drew you into history? I mean, I know you said you, you studied your family's history and you're, you're yeah. involved with, with the history of the Fulton. I don't, it's a good question. And I, I'm not sure my, I don't know, my grandfather for whom I'm named, Robert Leslie Pettigrew was a um, avocational historian. He was constantly reading history books. I, I you know, maybe I can um, credit him a little bit, but um, I don't know. I've just always been fascinated by it. And I think, you know, the older I get, the more I appreciate um, how living and alive it is in, right. and how relevant it is to where we are. Um, and I, I just love research. <laughs> um, I during graduate school that was a lot of what I did, and then actually I, I got a grant to go to Spain right after graduate school, and I wrote a biography of Spanish playwright um, Federico Garcia Lorca. So, um, and I just love that. I I love, and this was true with the Fulton too, like living in another time and going digging through archives and learning about the past and sort of spending time. Um, in another era while you're still in your current era. And, and for me, having grown up in Lancaster, and I, I probably spent 10 years working on the Fulton book, and it was so rich and wonderful to go into Lancaster Historical Society, which is now LancasterHistory.org, and you know dig around those newspapers and make discoveries and learn about the place where I grew up. I just did not, um, there was so much I didn't know. I didn't 
you know, when I was growing up, you didn't learn about the Paxton massacre, the, the killing of the Conestogas in school. I mean, there were just, you know, things that we we kept buried. Yeah. Um, so that was really rich. And then also to meet people today, you know, I spent hours inside that building, digging around, touching the stone wall. I brought in a geologist from Franklin and Marshall who, um, you know, put some chemicals on the stone wall, one just to prove to me that it was limestone and so on and so forth. So um, it's just a, it's such a rich, it just is, enriches your life. It is. It does. I, I, I agree with you. And I, I enjoy going in to research libraries too. <laughs> so. Well, you're in historic preservation. Yeah. So how did you yeah. get there? Um, well, I, I, I've thought about that a lot. Well, I, my, it was, it started out as my parents' business. My dad, um, we moved here from Colorado and my dad started working in preservation. So that, and I was 10, so I've grown up around historic buildings, historic, you know, all of that. Um, so that, that's how I got into this exactly. But I, I always loved history and my entire senior year, I had decided I was never doing science or math again, which really didn't work out when I went to college, but I had decided that. So I, so I share I, your pain. Yeah. So I, I, my entire senior year was either English or, um, or, or social studies classes. <laughs> what a, what a lucky childhood though. My God, look, you, you grew up around old buildings and I did. Yeah. And, oh. and, and the different ones that my dad, because we would just go visit my dad at work and he was working on, you know, whatever, you know, building he was working on. So, and then when my husband and I started dating, um, my dad asked him, you know, do you want to come work with me for the summer? And then Jonathan never left. And so now, now the two of us work together. Um, now my parents retired like three years ago. I, I'm losing track of time. I think it's three <laughs> But, um, but I, I just, I really, I really enjoy it. And I, you know, the work that I do in, you know, with my preservation consulting and my other things, I, I just feel like it's so important to acknowledge our history and also to, you know, preserve as much of our history as we can, because there's not, I mean, there's in, in our area, there's a lot of buildings left, but every day some get torn down and you, and then they're gone. It's also storytelling. I mean, you it think is. about um, the discovery of those cisterns uh, in the uh, Thaddeus Stevens house yeah. in Lancaster, and it changes the story, exactly. and it changes our understanding of ourselves and who we are and who we have been, and that is so exciting to be able to um, to do that. I mean, I don't, don't, I'm not sure before my book that it was sort of public knowledge um, that enslaved uh, people were held in I the basement of I the Fulton. Yeah, we, we I don't knew about the, the yeah. Yeah, yeah we knew about the Indians. Yeah. And, it, yeah, and it was just it was one day. It was one of those incredible things. This is what makes you know research so thrilling. I was at the historical society, and you know when you go to archives, it's always good to chat up the librarians, the archivists, because they know the collection. Right. And I was I had been there you know for off and on for years at that point, and I was talking to um, Kevin, uh, one oh, of the yes, archivists. He's great. He was he was a podcast guest a couple of maybe he's a year fantastic. and a half ago. Yeah, <laughs> he just mentioned in passing that um, he said, oh yeah, well, you know, there are some, um, we've got jail lists and they've got uh, runaways on them. And I went, what? And can you, can you, and he went down into the basement and he brought them up and I went, oh my God, my story just changed. That is incredible. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. I, I agree that they, they don't, they know so much more. <laughs> oh, you always, if you do archival work, folks, you know, like talk to the librarians, do not, do not um, omit that opportunity. Yeah. They, you know, so, yeah. So You've mentioned your book, but tell, tell me about your book, um, Staging Ground and American Theater and Its Ghosts. 
Well, um, it's a kind of, it's, I call it a history memoir because um, what I didn't want to do was just write a sort of, it was founded in 1852 and then this happened and then that happened and that happened. I wanted a thread to pull people through. So um, with, and I say this with all due humility, I'm not into writing a memoir, but I did spend a fair amount of time in the Fulton in, you know, sort of formative periods of, of my young adulthood. And so I used that as a kind of um, pull to get you through. I also used the figure of Blasius Yecker, who is somebody who's, Christopher Hager is pretty well known in the history of the Fulton. Yecker is not so well known. And I, in many ways, he was way more important. I mean, he, well, Christopher Hager built the building. You can't take that away. <laughs> Yecker's, Yecker's the guy who bought it. He was an old, he was a saddle maker. He was an immigrant from Germany. It's, an, it's a quintessentially American story. He came over here, 1848. He was like 14 or 15 years old. He went into the saddle making business. Um, not going to make a lot of money, but somehow he did. And my hunch, I was never able to prove it conclusively, but I'm 99.9% .9 sure he made a bunch of money in the war, selling, making saddles and selling sense. food yeah. and, um, you know, to the army. And um, because in... 1865, the fall of 1865, just a few months after the war was over, he had enough money to buy Fulton Hall and he turned it into an opera house. So that was one of its, um, that was really its first major renovation. And he poured a bucket load of money into it um, because at that point, now we're talking early 1870s, Americans, performers wouldn't perform in the theater, audiences wouldn't come, it was dilapidated, it was you know falling apart. Um, and so Yecker turned it into this lavish um, opera house. Right. And he started, and that was really the first golden age of the, of the theater. I would say we're in a second golden age now. Yeah. But that was the first golden age. It was the major roadhouse, all of these, you know, fantastic, you know, Buffalo Bill and Edwin Booth and um, all these people um, came into, into the Fulton and performed. And, and it, Yecker held onto that theater for until he died in 1903. Oh, so really crazy. for about 40 years. Um, and then by the time he died, it was beginning to dwindle because the movies were really threatening theaters. But anyhow, so he is my other thread um, for that theater. Um, but by by incorporating my own story into it, it allowed me to explore questions I've had all my life. I mean, I you know, studied theater in undergrad and grad, um, worked in theaters. I've always been fascinated by what theaters mean, how they function, how they, um, the role that they play in our understanding of ourselves and who we are. Um, also, the, um, one of my favorite books is a book called The Actress Freedom, and I relied on that. It's an old book, but it's wonderful about the freedom that performers have. When you put a mask on or you put a costume on and you get up there on the stage, you can do stuff that you right. cannot do walking out on the street. You can kill people. <laughs> you can rape people. You can, you know, hang them. You can shoot right. them. Like, yeah. Well, actually in Buffalo Bill's case, they did do that in, in the real. So that's a sad thing. But um, anyhow, so it really allowed me to explore these deep questions about what theaters mean to us. Why do theaters survive? And, right. you know, that to me, those are huge questions about this very building, the Fulton, because it has survived kind of miraculously. Um, it, and that golden era, that first golden era in the late 19th century, there were something like 4,000 roadhouses like the Fulton across this country. Mm -hmm. And um, today there are fewer than 300 of those still, you know, still in existence. Yeah. So how did the Fulton, why did the Fulton, right. what does it say about the community of Lancaster that they keep not only saving this theater, but expanding it? Right. Yeah. And they just, they did just undergo a, a major expansion. Oh. 33.5 million dollar 
project. Yeah. Um, and it now occupies, a, I, I know this because I'm just, I'm working on a talk about it. It now <laughs> occupies 131,000 square feet of downtown Lancaster. That's extraordinary. That is, it is. And, and they, they really are, I mean, they bring actors in from all, of, all over the country. I mean, it, yeah. it is, it, and you, you wouldn't assume that you would get people wanting to travel to Lancaster to work, you know, from, yeah. you know, you know, from other, other parts of the country, but they do. And now they have this whole, you know, community for them to live right. in. And that's, right. yeah, that, that, and, that and actors who are deeply attached to the place. I have never forgotten the time, one time when I was a kid and I was, or, you know, early adulthood right. uh, working at the Fulton, I came in one day, I think it was a Monday, you know, a dark day in the theater. And um, there was an actor sitting there in the lobby and next to him was the actress Gwen Verdon, who was famously married to Bob Fosse and she's, you know, brilliant uh, performing artist. And he had brought her down from New York for the day just to see the Fulton because it was such a special, spectacular place. Yeah. And that just always spoke to yes. me. Yes, yeah, yeah, that, that does, that does. So, so um, uh, I do, I think that says a lot about the, the building and, and everything that it inhabits, you know, it, it, it symbolizes and kind of the, the energy. But, but it, then we also have these, these ongoing ghost stories in, inside yeah. the Fulton. So, so can yeah. you tell me, tell me a little bit about what you, you've uncovered about the ghosts of the Fulton? Okay. Uh, so when I was working on the book about the Fulton, I brought in a ghost hunter who had spent a lot of time in the theater with all of his high-tech equipment, um, trying to track the distance of ghosts. He actually played a recording for me at one point, and you can hear it on the recording of um, a voice in the Fulton, in the dark, saying, St. Joseph. And I, I searched searched and searched to try to figure out what that might be. I never did. Right. But, um, but while we were there in the theater, we were standing on stage and he had an assistant with him who was taking pictures. And um, I do have a picture of myself standing there on the stage with a little like white sphere next to me. And um, I remember the ghost hunter said, now we have a little friend with us here. So they, um, he, with all of his high-tech equipment was absolutely convinced there were spirits moving in the, in the building. But there are some really sort of chilling stories. There's a story about, um, I think it was in the 1995 renovation of the theater. One of the workmen just became completely spooked at one point and like fled the building. I think he had to be hospitalized. I might be wrong on that, but just, and he wouldn't go back. And then um, my wonderful friend, Barry Kornhauser, who was playwright in residence at the Fulton for many years, uh, um, had a story, um, it was in, um, in the 1990s, they actually commemorated the massacre of the Conestogos with a native um, ritual um, involving sweetgrass and smoke outside. I wish I had been there for that, but I wasn't. But um, one of the Native Americans who took part in that ceremony gave Barry a piece of sweetgrass afterwards. And Barry went up to his office and you got to know Barry, but like Mr. Clutter, that <laughs> office was just, you know, stuff everywhere. Right. And he put the sweet rest down on his um, desk and then locked the door, you know, windows were locked, left for the day, came back. Nobody had been in the theater and certainly not in his office. The entire surface of his desk was swept clean. 
and the, the piece of sweetgrass was the only thing left on that. Oh my god! I mean, Barry's not a, he's not a believer in ghosts and I'm not particularly either, but, um, but there are instances of, you know, that are, that are just sort of inexplicable. Right. Um, yeah. So those are, you know, a couple more recent ones that I'm aware of, but people did talk about it. I remember uh, back in when they reopened the theater in the 1950s for live theater after a, a long run as a movie theater, um, there were people talking about like just feeling spooked. I think it was the stage manager who said, you know, I just, there's something there. I don't know what it is. And I think partly, I mean, just an old building with that much history right. and, um, that, you know, it's, and it creaks and it, I mean, I've worked in it. I, I can remember like those strange creaks and, um, and the stairs. Um, but I also think theaters are places with high, high energy. I mean, you think about the deep emotions that are expressed on stage, you know, and you, and then you compound that by, it means 150 years of people, right. you know, <laughs> over emoting, um, in that building and grappling with all kinds of, um, difficult, um, events and issues. There's something, something hangs on, right. And you know, that the old theater, um, one of the great pieces of apparatus that most theaters have is what's called a ghost light. It's a single light bulb on a stand that um, they will bring out and put on the stage after the performance is over, you know, the everybody's gone home, the stage manager will bring that out just, and it's really practical because these are dark buildings, right? right. Inside, yeah. they don't have light, natural light. Um, so they'll just put it there so that there's a light in, in, in the walk um, in, walk through. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's also a deep metaphor. I mean, it's called a ghost light right. and, and there it is. So um, yeah, but it's a, it's a richly ghosted building in so many ways. Yes. Yes. But both, both literally and figuratively. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so um, in your opinion or, and, and, you know, maybe some of your research, why do you think that the Fulton has survived when so many have not? Um, and, um, what was I thinking about that? And I was thinking like, do you, um, I guess that that's, yeah, that's my, that's my question. I was trying, I was trying to like add something else sure. to it, but I, <laughs> it didn't work. Well, it, it is, you know, it is um, arguably the oldest continuously operating theater in the United States. There are older theaters like the Walnut Street in Philadelphia. I think there's one or two other theaters that, that have a claim to being um, oldest continuously operating, but it's, um, it, so it is really remarkable that it kept going. Um, and I think it's, you know, partly just luck. Um, certainly community involvement and community commitment is huge. Um, in the, it, I think probably it came closest to being destroyed in the 1960s, that great era of urban renewal. Right. And um, they, one of the plans, if you can imagine it, it just galls me, was to gut the inside of the theater, keep the facade and put a parking garage in the back. Oh my goodness. And it was, this was actually like 1959, yeah. um, Mayor Kendig Bear, the mayor at the time refused to issue a building permit. Now, you know, that's what I've read. Right. Um, if it really came that close, that's pretty remarkable um, and pretty scary. But, you know, but I mean, that same era in Lancaster, they tore down the old Brunswick Hotel and right. put in and like the train square. Station. Yeah. 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 So, um, you know, that was the thinking then, you know, new is better. And um, so it came that close. And then this remarkable group of local citizens um, spearheaded in part by my good friend, Nat Hager, who was a uh, descendant of yeah. Christopher Hager, who built Fulton Hall. Um, they formed the Fulton Opera House Foundation. They raised money to save it. 
And then it got national historic, um, it became a national historic landmark. And I think at that point, its future was pretty insured. But you know, it still could have just been a museum yeah. or a historic building with a plaque on front and office space behind it, but right. it didn't. And theater is, um, it's labor intensive. It's expensive. You know, we all have little screens now. If we, if we need to see a play or, yeah. you know, be entertained, we don't have to go person into the theater and sit down and right. you know, um, sit in these red upholstered seats. So, um, so it's really remarkable. And I, you know, I, I can't give a completely um, uh, solid answer to that question because I think it's sort of up to, you know, it's, it's an individual thing. What does this theater mean to you? What right. does it mean to all of those people? Thousand different households who ponied up $33.5 million <laughs> to expand this theater and keep it going and make it um, big enough and put in housing for actors so that they can continue to do what they're doing and do even more of it. Because now this new complex has, I believe, four different stage spaces in it, four different spaces that can be used for theater. So not just the main stage, but smaller theaters for, um, you know, less commercial work. Um, so it's, um, and the people of Lancaster have decided that that's what they need. It's yeah. amazing. And I, I, I agree with you. I think that it's, um, it is, I, 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 I know that we, sometimes a lot of people come visit us from outside the area and they, they're surprised the, by, 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 by the, the culture in Lancaster, where yeah. it, you, know, it, 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 you wouldn't think that for a town or a city our size or even the county that we would have, have that. And also, so I think there are at least six other stage spaces in, in Lancaster itself, never mind what's in the county. Right. Um, and this is a town that is like, you know, you can get to Washington, you can get to New York, you can get to Philly pretty easily to see your culture. So here it is. The other thing that blows my mind is Lancaster, uh, I believe the city is like population 60,000. Yeah, I live right in around Ann Arbor. Yeah. I live in Ann Arbor, Michigan. We've got over 100,000 people and we don't have anything like the full. We don't have we have small theater companies, we have a, a big performing arts presenting organization, um, but we do not have that kind of um, commitment to live theater that Lancaster does. It's really, it's, a, it's really interesting. Yeah, that is special. It, it, it must say something about the community's commitment to, and, and I, it impresses me, um, the, the, some of the shows that they're willing to do that seem like they wouldn't fit into the, into the community. And they, right. they must have enough people wanting to see it that, that right. um, that it, it's that it's it's the I, I think that says something about the way that the the um, the community is changing too. And don't forget, there's the other the other side of a production is the people who are doing it. Right. So the people who are doing the production, they're not just like you know actors who don't care <laughs> and are just getting a paycheck. I mean, there is a need on all sides to, you know, wrestle with stuff and right. put on these plays and write these plays, you know, like last, this past summer. So, you know, we are going through a moment <clears throat> of real racial reckoning in this country. What can this theater do to be at the center of that and to help people understand and confront and discuss and reflect on, on what's happening? Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that, that that's a very important role in our, in our society overall. Um, before we wrap up, is there anything that you wanted to share that maybe I didn't think to ask you or you thought of while we were, while we were chatting? Um, the only thing that occurs to me is just to say again, like it, it, I think it, you know, it's not, doesn't, it strikes me that it's not just the Fulton that the people of Lancaster have committed to. I mean, now you look at the role of historic preservation, particularly in that city. I mean, I'm so thrilled with this 
um, you know, turning the Thaddeus Stevens house into a museum and a site. And I think it just, you know, there's such a, 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 a history and a tradition of, certainly in my lifetime, of the people of Lancaster rising to the occasion and um, cherishing the incredible culture and history in their midst. And I just, um, I hope that they, that it's an example for other, other places. And um, again, as somebody who is passionate about history, but also I believe so firmly that we need to confront not just the happy, bright, pretty parts of our past, but the dark parts, the difficult parts, the complex parts. This is not, um, um, I mean, that's misnomer about critical race theory, whatever. It's, it's just, we, until we uncover what happened and tell the truth, we are never going to begin to heal the harm that right, happened. Right. And, and it, I yeah. cannot emphasize that en en enough. And, and it's, not, it's not a betrayal of who we are. It's an acknowledgement of our complicated past. And I, you know, you tell me the country that doesn't have a complicated past. Yeah, yeah, because people are everywhere and people are complicated. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. that, that is yeah. that is the truth. Um, yeah, I, I, I really do agree with that. I, I think that there's, there's there's a lot of misguided um, uh, uh, fears right now that are being sure. fueled and 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 I as somebody who loves history and 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 I I mean not all of the you know I, I see some of the history that I was taught in school was you know not exactly a hundred percent accurate but by the time I was in high school you know we were we were getting into some pretty pretty heavy things. And I, I appreciate that. I appreciate the education that I got. And, and, you know, there's always more that we can learn and more than we can, you know, more than we can um, acknowledge and, and learn from. Cause if we don't, if we don't do that, we're going, you know, it's, it's, it's very yeah. easy to slip back into. Well, and if the buildings aren't there and we don't preserve what we've got, I mean, we've lost a lot, but if we don't preserve what's left, um, then the evidence goes away and it becomes easier to cover it up. Yeah. Um, I, I, as an aside, I, I've just been reading this really remarkable book about Germany. Uh, woman, American woman, Susan Neiman, who is Jewish, grew up in Atlanta, but lives in Berlin. And the book is called Learning from the Germans. And it's about how Germany has confronted um, the Holocaust in the last um, 70 odd years. And, um, and it, you know, it's not unlike what we're going through now, um, where, you know, for many years, people did not want to, to acknowledge it at all. They wanted right. to brush it, you know, pretend it hadn't happened. And, but there's this, you know, remarkable um, sort of, again, healing that can happen um, and awareness when you um, confront the full history in all of its ugliness and, you know, it's occasional beauty. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we have so many things to be proud of in this country and we've yeah. done so many wonderful things and we've also done some really heinous things. Right. And um, to pretend that one can exist without the other or didn't exist, whatever, right. you know, the, right. the one yeah. that existed yeah. without the other is, just, you know, not to tell the truth. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. So um, I know you said that your your book was a few, um, a few years ago, but where could someone purchase your book? I just checked it out because I knew you were going to ask me that and yeah. you can get it on Amazon. I don't necessarily like to push people to Amazon. Okay. Uh, I'm sure you can order it through your local uh, preferably order it through your local bookstore, but you can also go straight to the Penn State. Um, uh, 
I've lost you. Oh, you're muted. Push the right button. Okay, sorry. Oops. I, I lost I think that's got to be. Yeah. Don't you think that's like the most repeated phrase in the last two years? Probably. <laughs> So um, then uh, the, the very last question, um, yeah, we are recording. Um, uh, recording. Uh, how, can our, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Oh, um, I'm happy to be emailed. Do you want the um, Stanton, S-T-A-N-S-O-N-E-D-U. Um, I have a website. You can go on that. And there's a contact form on there as well. Okay, and very I'd good. Love to hear from you. Okay, yeah, we'll make sure that that is on our site where the podcast is hosted. And then if right. someone's listening and didn't get a chance to write it down, they can always get it there. Great. Okay, Great. Thank you so much. I enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for listening to the Practical Preservation Podcast. The resources discussed during this episode are on our website at practicalpreservationservices.com forward slash podcast. If you received value from this episode and know someone else that will get value from it as well, please share it with them. Join us next week for another episode of the Practical Preservation Podcast. For more information on restoring your historic home, visit practicalpreservationservices.com.